Well, this morning I'm going to read from 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 3 to 11. And I'm going to read in a different translation, the, the NIRV, the New International Reader's Version. It's the uh, version of the Bible that comes at kind of the lowest reading level that's still a full Bible translation. So basically it's the simplest uh, translation out there, the same one we gave to a number of our, our kids uh, when, at the end of Sunday school time this year. And partially just because it captures a couple things in a neat way and also because we've got the kids with us and it might be the easiest for them to pick up bits and pieces of this that way as well. Uh, so that's what's going to be on the screen. Uh, and it may look a little different if you follow along in your own Bibles, but yeah, it should still be easy enough to follow along. So that's 2 Peter 1, 3, 2, 11. From God's word we read, God's power has given us everything we need to lead a godly life. All of this has come to us because we know the God who chose us. He chose us because of his own glory and goodness. He has also given us his very great and valuable promises. He did it so that you could share in his nature. You can share in it because you've escaped from the evil in the world. This evil is caused by sinful desires. So you should try very hard to add goodness to your faith. To goodness, add knowledge. To knowledge, add the ability to control yourselves. To the ability to control yourselves, add the strength to keep going. To the strength to keep going, add godliness. To godliness, add kindness to one another. And to kindness to one another, add love. All these things should describe you more and more. They will make you useful and fruitful as you know our Lord Jesus Christ better. But what if these things don't describe someone at all? Then that person can't see very well. In fact, they are blind. They have forgotten that all their past sins have been washed away. My brothers and sisters, try very hard to show that God has appointed you to be saved. Try hard to show that he has chosen you. If you do everything I have just said, you will never trip up and fall. You will receive a rich welcome into the kingdom that lasts forever. It is the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May God bless to our understanding this reading from his word. So this Sunday is our, is our third week where we're looking at the seven what are called contrary virtues. They're the traditional qualities the historic church has developed, which are meant to counter the seven deadly sins. And these virtues and these sins, they're not in a specific passage in the Bible, but they are very well rooted throughout Scripture. And they're at least as relevant today as perhaps they've ever been. I read an estimate this week from a, a psychologist that said that about 40% of what you and I do in a day, so almost half of the things we get up to in a day, we, we do them out of habit. right? We, we don't make everything up from scratch when we roll out of bed. We create these patterns that we live through by, for better or for worse. And if we form good habits, they kind of work in the background of our lives, helping us. They, habits that transform our character is one way to describe a virtue. And I think as the, as the church, we should think about and talk about virtue more than perhaps we do. Because with greater virtue, we would have much better luck living and working together in peace. And we'd have much better success, I think, in building a world that operates more justly. So far in this series, Erica preached on humility to counter pride, and last week I spoke on kindness as a counter to envy, and today I have the interesting assignment of taking a peek at the deadly sin of gluttony and its antidote, which is the virtue of temperance. 
So let's, let's see what a modern biblical look at these kind of old-timey sounding concepts yields for us. Now, when you hear the word gluttony, you probably think of food and overeating, right? And that, that has a place in this teaching. Christian thinkers over the years have pointed out and condemned the practice of regularly overindulging in food and drink. One reason is that this is a form of disrespect for the body, which is a gift that God has given us. But that is really just scratching the surface. One key Christian thinker, who is Thomas Aquinas, also considered it to be gluttony. If you spend too much money on fancy food, for instance, even if it was perfectly healthy food, even if it was the right amount of food, the overspending was improper because it was an excessive investment in one person's appetites at the expense of other people and priorities. Gluttony can be the result of an appetite for much more than food or drink. So I'm going to use a pretty broad definition today that includes overindulging in status symbols, in luxury items, in sexual desire, in entertainment, in anything else that we might seek after and consume to an unhealthy or unhelpful degree. Now, gluttony has social and societal costs. If you imagine back to a different time when for most people in a community, just getting enough calories in a day was a struggle. Then you can maybe imagine just how outrageous it was for one person in that community to be hoarding and consuming huge amounts of what everybody else was struggling so hard just to get enough of. And on a global scale, that's still very much the case. Right? The rich nations are engaged in massive overconsumption. The poorest nations lack many of the simplest and most essential things. So there's a selfishness element to gluttony. It's a failure to recognize that we are connected to others, that we should seek their good even in our private behavior. In Canada, we're in increasingly poor health as far as obesity and fitness go, for example. And one shared consequence of that is this hugely increased cost and strain on our healthcare system, which affects everybody. But at its heart, gluttony is not simply a societal issue or a social issue or a physical issue and it's distinct from addiction which has a lot of physiological components and some different responses that are needed but gluttony is a spiritual issue the bible associates gluttony with idolatry because when we move away from worshiping god as we should the god who we can trust to provide for our needs who can give us true fulfillment well then we inevitably turn to other things to try to satisfy our appetite it, they don't. Those things don't work. Because you just can't eat or entertain or succeed your way to fulfillment. There are deeper depths to you that need more than that. This is why Jesus, in speaking to the woman at the well, if you remember that story from, from your Bible, he offered her living water, which would not run out, which she would not thirst again once she had it. And this amazed her because she thought, well, imagine water that you could drink and then not be thirsty again. He was offering her spiritual fulfillment, which would not run dry. And gluttony has spiritual consequences, just like the physical and social ones. Philippians 9, uh, 19 and 20 talks about what continuing to rebel against God does. And it says that their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with their minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So gluttony is a symptom of being on a wrong path, that one that leads to destruction and shame. So that's a quick look at gluttony. And in our consumer-centric culture, it is not just accepted in our midst, it is strongly encouraged everywhere we turn. So then there's temperance. Temperance 
is that word used in that traditional church list of contrary virtues that counter the seven deadly sins, but it's not a word you hear much anymore, is it? We really, we associate it with, you know, a century ago and people trying to restrict or ban alcohol, but temperance is the virtue really of self-restraint or moderation or self-control. And I'll use these different terms somewhat interchangeably to capture the different aspects of temperance, but self-control is probably the word I'll use most often because it's the word the Bible uses most often. But John Milton in his book, Paradise Lost, sums up the nature of this virtue by calling it the rule of not too much. The rule of not too much. And how much is too much depends entirely on the person, but we all have a line between what is healthy or wise and what is too much. And temperance is really exercising the ability to say no to certain impulses or pleasures that would cross that line. And I'm not sure there's a single thing that more religions and philosophies agree upon than the importance of self-control. It's almost universally recognized that it is essential to have self-control in order to live well, in order to be the right, <clears throat> the right kind of person. Self-control or self-restraint is really also key to developing most of the other virtues that we have and will talk about because what is humility if not restraining yourself from pride? Modesty is restraining your vanity. Mercy and forgiveness require having control over your anger. And so whenever you find a list of positive qualities or qualifications for being uh, a good and godly leader or a family member in the Bible, you will almost always find self-control listed very prominently among them. For example, uh, church leadership in the Bible, in the New Testament, when there's a highly trusted leader and you're looking for the qualities you want in that person, in multiple passages it says they must be above reproach, they must be temperate, self-controlled, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not lovers of money, but holy and disciplined. And then if you look in Titus chapter 2, it gives this whole list of different things that are supposed to be taught to different groups of people in the church. And Paul writes, teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith and in love and in endurance. And then he goes on to say that older women should teach the younger women to be self-controlled, among other things. And then as far as younger men go, he gets to younger men and he says, similarly, encourage young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. Self-control is so important for younger men, it's the only thing he lists as the things that they need to be taught. Hopefully, that just starts to provide us a sense of what we're talking about. Self-control, which also anchors that list of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And I want that just to set the stage for looking at this passage from 2 Peter that we read earlier. And we'll, we'll dig a little deeper into that now. And this passage really hits with an important statement right off the bat, that God's power has given us everything we need to live a godly life. So it's possible for you to live the way you should, the way you were created to live, the way of eternal and abundant life. But not simply by our own effort. Willpower and self-discipline can take you a certain amount of the way in many things, but Christianity holds that we don't just overcome sinfulness and live as we should without God's help. All of this, our passage says, has come to us because we know the God who chose us. That's how it comes to us, because we know the God who chose us. He chose us because of his own glory and goodness. 
He has also given us his very great and valuable promises. He did that so that you could share in his nature. That's really important here. Our hope comes from God choosing us. Jesus came into our world to seek and to save the lost, and he gave his life for us all. He chose us. And when we receive that as a gift, when we are drawn to him, choose him back, we're given new life, a life that shares in Jesus' nature. And this, I think, is a point of some confusion and debate among Christians because sometimes we have that question, if I've been given a new life when I was saved, if I come to faith in Jesus and receive the eternal life he offers, why do I still sometimes act as badly as I did before? Why do some of these other people around me who say that they're just as as saved as, as I am sometimes not act any better than they did before? And one of the ways of thinking about this is that we at times will still sin in some of the ways that we did before we started following Jesus. But we're now acting against our new nature. It used to be natural to sin and to obey, dis- disobey God. But when we share in Jesus' nature, it is now natural to do the right thing. It's just that we sometimes still fail to do it, and all the more if we let ourselves be disconnected from Christ. And that's part of the point of this whole series as we look at the, the seven virtues, these good habits that become part of our character. They should grow out of our relationship with Jesus. When we live out our faith, then we're able to act more and more according to our new nature, which is Christ-likeness. So the next section in this passage, verses 5 to 8, it describes some of these qualities that we're to gain. Faith, and then add goodness, then add knowledge, then add self-control, then add perseverance, and then godliness, and then kindness to one another, and then love. And this is, I think, probably just mostly my own thinking here. I don't have a giant list of scholarly references for this, but I see something in the order in which these are placed here. I think there is a progression. It's not just a random list of things that are good. I think that there is an order. Faith comes first, not surprisingly. And there's the first, this addition of goodness, this initial transformation of character that comes with first knowing and following Jesus. And then, he says, comes knowledge, which opens new doors to growth. But then to progress beyond knowledge requires self-control. Because it's, it's great to know more about God and what is good and right. But if you cannot or will not restrain your sinful impulses, then you will never mature past that point. And there are incredibly knowledgeable Christians out there who lack the qualities that build on self-control, that perseverance, that godliness, that kindness toward one another, that love. And love is the ultimate goal. You can have knowledge without love, but it shows a lack of maturity in character. The Christian journey is one of transformation. Our passage says, all these things should describe you more and more. They will make you useful and fruitful as you know our Lord Jesus Christ better. A progression, movement, journey, transformation. We should grow in these things, taking on more of Jesus' nature. Then it asks an important question, but what if these things don't describe someone at all? And the answer is then then that person can't see very well. In fact, they are blind. They have forgotten that their past sins have been washed away. Or to put it another way, they've forgotten what it means that Jesus chose them. And therefore, they don't have the gratitude and the thanksgiving and the, the joy that flow from that of truly knowing that Jesus has saved me. I belong to him. So eternal life is not static. 
The new life that Jesus gives us when we give our yes to him is one that takes after him more and more. And I haven't yet met any Christians who perfectly live up to their new nature. But I do know people who have progressed, who have matured beyond that initial faith, who have exercised self-control, who've added kindness to one another and love to their nature by following Jesus. And those are the people I most want to be around and learn from. And some of the struggles I see in our wider church is that these are not the things we identify and value as much as we should. Sometimes it's, uh, it's, it's talent, it's magnetism that people look for, and not self-control, kindness to one another, and love. So to get back to the good news at the beginning of this passage, God has given us everything we need to live a godly life. But we see that gluttony can get in the way of this. It stands between our initial response to Jesus in faith and that more mature faith that requires self-control. So when I get tired or discouraged, I still have faith. I still have knowledge. And that knowledge can even tell me that, and help me recognize that, boy, what you really need is some quiet. You need some reflection. You need some prayer. You need to lean on God for strength. But gluttony will tempt you with substitutes. Now, to mindlessly scroll my phone, or for me to to work harder but in a way that's not productive, or to retreat into daydream or fantasy, or to just to look over and over again at things that I want to buy but I'm not actually planning to buy and probably shouldn't buy, or the classic glutton response of of eating too much or worse. See, it's, it's foolish, and it's obviously so. So, you know, I need God, but I buy cheese. Right? I, I need Jesus, but I, I hunt through Facebook Marketplace. Gluttony comes in a lot of different forms. And I don't know exactly what it looks like for you, but I challenge you to consider what it looks like, to recognize it at work in your life, because at some level, it is. You consume when you should commune. And that has consequences for you and for your faith and for the people in the world around you. So there is great value to temperance, to that rule of not too much. When we have self-control, we can keep things in balance, put in their proper places in our lives. 1 Timothy 4, I think, is helpful here because it says, For everything God created is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. And except in a few extreme cases, Christianity has never taught that we should reject all the good and pleasurable things that God has made available to us in this world. But for these things to add to our lives instead of exacting a cost on us, we need that self-control. We can enjoy them with temperance, ensuring that Jesus stays on the throne of our lives as we receive the good things of this world with thanksgiving. So how do we get more self-control? This is probably an important question, and it's kind of a tough question because you can't just answer that question by saying, well, just don't do this or just do more of that. If you had self-control, that would be easy, and it's not very helpful advice if you don't. How do you get it? Well, there are a few things that might be of some help in, in this, and I'm going to offer them, and these come more on the spiritual side than on other things. There are physical things that help with self-control. Getting enough sleep at night helps a lot with self-control. <laughs> Good financial planning so that you're not stressed about money helps a lot with self-control. Psychology tells us these things. But on the spiritual end of gluttony, and as far as building that virtue of temperance, a few things would be, first of all, worship. Regular worship is important because it helps us focus on what matters most. Worship lifts us up. 
beyond the day-to-day, beyond the earthly things, and sets our eyes back on God, back on the transcendent. Worship helps to fill our spiritual need so that we don't turn to lesser things and poor substitutes instead. And by worship, I do mean corporate worship in a church service, but of course that hour once a week is not a lot compared to the temptations around us. And so I'm also talking about times of prayer, listening to worship music, reading books or listening to podcasts that help deepen faith or that do good to encourage and remind us of God. Acts of worship help grow that virtue of self-control. Commune rather than consume. A second thing is self-reflection. We spent a whole month on the spiritual practice of self-reflection a little earlier in this year. You might, might remember back to that a little bit. And it means inviting Jesus to be part of taking a deeper look at ourselves. How is my whole self doing? What is the state of my soul? And taking stock of ourselves matters here because gluttony often begins very small and it builds slowly until it becomes out of control in a way we don't notice very well. We have warning signs that things are out of balance, but we don't always recognize them uh, in time. And so to see those things, to correct ourselves, to get our course set right, the sooner and better we do that, then the better things will go for us. And the third area that I wanted to note here is is really accountability. Accountability is so key. This is why support groups are so vital to a lot of different kinds of uh, conditions that that people face and need that uh, awareness of having other people who understand what your struggle is like, people who can encourage you and sometimes challenge you to overcome them. And so when it comes to to gluttony, to these, uh, these, these impulses towards unhealthy levels of things, That's where a spouse, a parent, a child, a close friend, a spiritual mentor, or someone else that you choose to give permission to say something to you is is so important. Someone else who might first notice that you are getting out of balance and you have given that trust to tell you is a powerful asset. Has to be the willing to listen to them as well and not to, you know, get annoyed at them and then so they'll never talk to you again after that. But this is, you know, accountability is not an easy thing, but it's a vital and powerful thing. So that is not an exhaustive list, but I think that covers some of those spiritual side things that help us with this virtue of temperance, this virtue for which we, we need the Holy Spirit. God's power has given us everything we need to lead a godly life. God's power has given us everything we need. And that, by the way, is not a boring life, because sometimes people will get that impression. Temperance does not sound exciting, (laughs) except that you can have a lot more things to the good when you're not being dragged down by the things that have tripped you up. This is a life that has balance, that can properly enjoy the good things that God has given without letting those things cause us harm to us or to the people around us or to the world around us. And that translation that I chose in this passage keeps repeating that we should try very hard. It's in there three different times. Try hard to live this kind of life. But it first reminds us that our, our, our effort, our sheer effort, is not what allows us to succeed and gain the self-control that we need to become mature. We need faith in that God who chose us. Christ crucified and resurrected as our hope. He gives that new life where we can share in his nature. But then it is up to us to try hard to live more and more according to this nature, to not just be content to say, well, Jesus saved me, he's going to take care of it, it's all in his hands, I guess I'll just wander off and do whatever I feel like. I don't think you can really understand what Jesus has done for you and then have that 
attitude. So it says, try hard to live more and more according to this new nature so that we will be useful and fruitful and come to know our Lord Jesus better. So you should try very hard to add goodness to your faith, add knowledge to your goodness, add self-control to your knowledge, and to that self-control we add strength to keep going, godliness, kindness for one another, and love. And again, try very hard to show that God has appointed you to be saved. Try very hard to show that he has chosen you. And so if we have not been trying very hard lately to have self-control, to grow in maturity of faith, well, then that's kind of our bottom line for today. If you do everything I have said, you will never trip and fall. You will receive a rich welcome into the kingdom that lasts forever. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you that through your power, it is possible to live as we should. And I thank you also that by your grace, you are there for us all the times that we don't. Lord Jesus, this is not about a, a life of struggle and trial and, and shame where we try to, to beat ourselves into always doing exactly the right thing, Lord Jesus, but rather it is recognizing that you chose us that you saved us, that you sacrificed your own life to give us new life. And that is such wonderful news. That is such a blessing to us that what response makes any sense but a desire to serve you and to know you more and to be drawn closer to that love. So Lord Jesus, if we are not seeing that well, if we are a little bit blind right now to what that means, I pray that you would open our eyes Open our eyes to see you as you are in your glory and love for us. Open our eyes to see what your nature is and desire that for ourselves so that not in a way that is exhausting and discouraging, but in a way that is filled with joy and hope, we would try very hard to live according to that nature. Try very hard to look like people who've been saved and are loved by you. Help us to have that self-control that allows us to add that kindness to one another, that love, that godliness, so that we will be the people who know Jesus Christ better and better. This I ask in your gracious name. Amen.